At least now I can blame it on pregnancy hormones. <laughs> I'm already crying. Okay. Well, Gabriel and I first came here three months after we were married, almost five years ago, when it was in Eric and Jen's first house. <laughs> and um, we had just gotten out of ministry school. We spent three years there. That's where we met. And we almost accepted the youth pastor positions, but decided that, you know, God wasn't leading us in that direction at the time. We thought that, you know, we'd been through training, we paid our dues, you know, we were we were good people. And um, come to find out, the Lord called people to a way higher standard than they could ever imagine. Um, I think one of the biggest things that Gabriel and I have learned over the last five years has been to live in that uncomfortableness, um, that awkward feeling of, of just wanting to be better and knowing that the Lord has so much more from you. I can't tell you the amount of times these last five years that I've thought and prayed, I just want an easy life, Lord. <laughs> you know, I just want things to be easy, but he doesn't call people to an easy life. If you want to be a real, genuine person, if you want to really do what the Word of God tells you to do, we've come to learn that there's no easy, there's no easy way out. We've been through a lot more than we could have ever imagined these last five years, and we are completely different people than we were five years ago. Unrecognizable. Um, we thought that we were Christians. We thought that we were good people, but the Lord quickly stripped all of that away, and we began to really do the work and really face and walk through everything that we needed to to be genuine and to, and to be true followers of the way, as, as Eric calls it. Um, and what I want to challenge you guys to do, what I want to kind of talk to you about today is just to, to, to live in that awkwardness, to, to learn to, to walk through those situations. So many times in the world right now, um, Christians believe that they have to have it all together and look like they've got everything right, and we're good Christians, we're good people, we serve in this, we serve in that. And I, and I, I believe that you, you can look like a good Christian, you can serve on, on the... Um, cleaning crew and in youth groups and you can do all of those things but your heart is can not be right with the Lord in that you know you can want just to look like everything's together you can and it's hard to to be open it's hard to be the kind of person that will admit their faults and failings this is a hard environment to achieve that in because we're pushed and we're pressed so much and I would I would say for all of you to be open to the process and it is a process. There's no, there's no height that you can achieve. There's no stamp of approval that you're done and you're all set like we thought you could get. It's a process. And, and be open to each other. Um, don't just be open to Jen and Eric and to Matt and Cass. Be open to each other. It's an it's a uncomfortableness of letting people in and sharing your lives with people and putting yourself on the line because they might not let you in too and, and, and sharpening other people and, and being the one to sharpen other people. It's an uncomfortable feeling, but if you learn to live in that and to use that to grow and become a genuine person to where you're not hiding things, you're not having to, to cover up the things in your life, but you're just open and you're true, about everything that's going on, the Lord can really bless that, and the Lord can really give you a life that is beyond anything you can imagine. And um, I just encourage you guys just to be open with each other and to and to live a life that is genuine. Amen. Amen. That's, that's a good word. Isn't my wife awesome? Yeah. <laughs> um, 
Well, it's crazy to think that um, today is the day that we are going to be going to another state. Um, some of you guys have been here since the very beginning of Debbie and I walking into the front doors, and just to think that that was five years ago is an incredible thought. Um, three years prior to coming here, like Debbie said, we did go to quote-unquote ministry school, <coughs> but it was not ministry school. It was a place where there were people with PhDs that were teaching us, and they were teaching us all the right things to say, um, not necessarily the right things to believe, because come to find out after spending time with Eric, uh, most of the things that we believe were you know, incorrect. But um, upon meeting Eric, immediately what happened is two choices are given to you from the very beginning. Um, once you get involved with the church, you quickly realize that you either have a choice to follow the Lord with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, or you have a choice to live in your sin. And if you choose to live in your sin, you will be very uncomfortable, like Debbie talked about, inside of this church, and you'll probably end up leaving. Um, which I love so much because what you find is you find yourself <coughs> surrounded with men and women who are genuinely in love with Jesus and who are striving to live this thing out. Um, it was probably three years ago uh, I decided that, not really I decided, but I felt like I was called to go get my pilot's license in Austin. And we did this exact same scenario about three years ago, four years ago actually. And what I found in Austin was that I was not nearly prepared to do what God had called me to do because I was not taking this thing seriously. Um, I learned how to sit there and make everything look like it was okay. How to come into church and put a smile on my face. Um, to be the first one to serve or the last one to stand in line. But what was not there was this genuine love for Jesus. And I came back and I preached a message that was very straight and forward. And I still remember it to this day. It was called Crossing Over. And a lot of you guys have heard the in-depth details of that testimony, but at that point in time, I decided that no matter what it was going to cost me, I was going to try my hardest to live this thing out and to love Jesus with all of my strength. Now, since then, this environment has provided us the opportunity for me to fall flat on my face. Mm -hmm. I have made some mistakes that I'm not very proud of. Um, but you know what? I sat there. I got corrected. I allowed correction in my life. And as a result of it, I do not feel second class to other people. I do not feel like I'm going to Arkansas and I'm going to stand next to men who believe that they are strong men of faith, and I'm not going to feel that I'm outclassed by them. Um, if I could encourage you guys with one thing like Debbie gave a charge to you, I would encourage you with this, is that during this time period that you are part of this ministry, to take it extremely serious. Because what you see happening today is what's supposed to happen to each and every single person inside of this room. You're not supposed to sit here and stay. That's not what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to soak in as much as you can, come to the realization that you are a man, woman of God, and then go out and live this thing out and share it with other people. It's what's supposed to happen. When I first met Eric, one of the very first questions he asked, which I'm sure he asked 100% of people in this room is, is what is your favorite scripture? Um, well, my favorite scripture that I've been holding on to for about the past four and a half years of my uh, Christian walk has been Micah 7-8. And whenever you read Micah 7-8, I tend to stick on that verse, but when you read further, there's a lot of meaning. So I kind of want to read it to you real quick. But it says, Micah 7-8, Do not gloat over me, my enemy. Though I have fallen, I will rise. Though I sit in darkness, the Lord will be my light. Because I have sinned against him, I will bear the Lord's wrath until he pleads my case and establishes my right. He will bring me out into the light I will see his righteousness. Then my enemy will see it, and he will be covered with shame. He who said to me, Where is the Lord your God? My eyes will see his downfall. Even now he will be trampled underfoot like mire in the streets. 
The day for building your walls will come, the day for extending your boundaries. Mm-hmm. I feel like my walls have been starting to get built and my boundaries are just now starting to get expanded. Um, there came a point in time whenever I realized that this gospel that we've been learning so much about is not about talking. It's just not. That's what I've been doing for the past 22, 23 years of my life is a whole lot of jibber-jabber. I could get up there and give a speech with the best of them. I could sit down and have an intellectual conversation with some guys that you know, thought that they had it all together, but that is not what this is about. I'm not about sitting down and debating theories and what you believe and what I believe. I'm more about sitting back and examining, okay, what are you doing with this? And that has just come from learning this from Eric. Um, which brings me to my new favorite scripture verse, which has just come to me in the past couple of weeks, but I'm sticking to it until the Lord brings me a new one. But um, it's actually 1 Corinthians 4.20, and it says, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. Um, that's the verse that I'm hanging to. Uh, real quick testimony in Matamoros. Uh, there was a time for an altar call that was given for salvation, and it was a time for people to come up and get saved. Well, a lady made her way up to the front, Um, But that lady did not come up to get saved. She had already had Jesus inside of her. She came up to experience the power of healing in her life. Men and women are not interested in what you have to say. They're just not. They're more interested in the power that you bring with you and what you have to do to show them. That's just the way it is. Now, whenever we go to Arkansas, we're going to come back. And I think that God has ordained it that way for me to come back and say, Eric, I'm dealing with this type of individual or this is going on in my life. What do I do? And then to receive that kind of direction steered to go do the things that we're supposed to be doing. But what I am extremely excited about is that I finally feel ready. Mm. Not in the sense that I'm perfect or that it's not going to be hard or that I'm not going to make mistakes, but I feel the sense that bring on the obstacles. Bring them on because I've got a wife who I'm pouring the word into. I have a son who I'm in charge of. I have a baby on the way, and God has made me into this man that I am today. One last thing. Elizabeth gave me a book this morning. And I think that whenever Debbie and I first came to LCMF, I was a boy and she was a girl. And this is what this saying says. It says, what is a boy? A boy is a person who is going to carry on what you have started. He is going to sit right where you are sitting and when you are gone, attend to the things you think are important. You may adopt all the policies you please, but how they will be carried out depends on him. He will assume control of your cities, states, and nations. He is going to move and take over our churches, schools, universities, and corporations. All your books are going to be judged, praised, or condemned by him. The fate of humanity is in his hands. So it might be well to pay some attention. Um, and then the last point is this. A man never stands quite so tall as when he stoops to help a boy. And that's exactly what this ministry has done. They've stooped down to help a boy and a girl become the man and woman that we are today. And there is no way that I can possibly thank them enough. Um, it took an extreme amount of patience to deal with it. It just did. And there's no way I can say thank you. So thank you so much for what you guys have been to us. We love you. We're excited to carry this thing out. And if y'all think about us, please pray for us because we could really use it. Amen. Matthew, come pray with us. When ministry is done right, you transition something God's given to you into someone else, but take no credit for it, except no thanks for it, because it comes from Jesus. Your thanks is in watching someone go to other places, see people that you haven't seen, people that you haven't touched, things that you could not do, and see the work of God carry on through their lives. Uh, I didn't get here by myself. 
there are other men that poured into me. Some of you don't even know their names. And there are more than one. There are more than one ministry along the way. That's what ministry is supposed to be. It's supposed to multiply itself. Amen? Amen. I believe these guys will multiply what they've been given. Amen. Mighty God, Lord, we, we thank you for our, our friends. Lord, we're asking that you would wrap them in power like a garment. <coughs> Lord, I thank you. I thank you for these two awesome brothers and sisters. Lord, wherever they set their feet, I believe you've given them the land. Lord, I'm asking that your spirit would remind them of the things that you have chosen to teach them. Mighty one, that when they open their mouths, they would be carried along by your spirit. Lord, when they face the impossible, they would simply see it as an environment for a great miracle. Mighty God, that their hands would see the healing of hearts, the healing of bodies, and the salvation of souls. We love you, Lord God. We thank you for their ministry. And it has been our privilege to serve them. Lord, we ask that you would send them to go do likewise. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Hallelujah. Well, Gabe's coming back to lead worship while I'm in... No, while Matt's out of town somewhere, right? In May? Mm-hmm. And uh, we're going to see him. So y'all yeah, go ahead and have a seat. <laughs> Came on crutches. She sat there the entire time the man spoke. The truth is, she didn't care what he had to say. She wanted to be healed. Do you understand what I'm saying? She didn't care whether the preaching was right. She didn't care whether the pauses were in the right places. She just wanted to be healed. Uh, She already loved Jesus. She wanted to be healed. So the man gave a very specific altar call, hoping to only see people who wanted to be saved. And she hobbled out there as fast as she could. And he was a little flustered, honestly, that that's not what she was there for. When you want something bad, when you are desperate for it, it's a breeding ground for great faith. I mean great faith. We didn't see immediately that she threw down her crutches and, and, and danced. But about four hours later, this woman who... How old do you all think she was? I mean, she was it's at least as old as Methuselah. The last thing she said to me before she left was she set her crutches aside and she said, No pain. No pain, right? I'm convinced that our king wants to do amazing things in ways where nobody gets credit. And holding a microphone in your hand and praying just right, it might even offend Jesus. Uh, Because the woman left healed, but nobody got to see that except Jesus and her. The power is not in the great healing evangelist. The power is in the testimony of the person healed. Can you say amen to that? Amen. Amen. I got one more testimony. Uh, We were kind of playing some music in the background and... uh, this one lady comes up and she holds up some money and she has like a worried look on her face and she's yes. saying you know she's trying to tell me in Spanish that she she found it and that she wasn't going to keep it uh, and granted she had enough money in her hand to buy food for herself and her family for the next week or so that's how much money she had found and so she was very leery that somebody would find out that she had it and it wasn't hers and basically she was being a thief so she came to turn in we were trying to redirect her <laughs> And this is where, kind of like when we're worshiping, and also when you read the Word on your personal time and are led by the Spirit, what to read and what to that's practice, in all honesty. Where the game time really is, is when you're faced with a, a real situation where if you do not act that precise moment, you miss the play. Yeah. Jesus began to just show me very quickly, this woman didn't find this money by co- coincidence. And she, came, she had a pure heart, wanted to come and give it. 
And she kept trying to give it, you know, to one of the Marcos, the guy on the video. And Abel was helping me out. And I stopped and I said, wait a minute. I looked at her and I said, you didn't find this money just because it fell on the ground. I said, you found this money because beforehand, when the prayer time was happening up front, you wouldn't want to come up here. You were too embarrassed to come up here then in front of everyone else. But God got you to come up here. Mm -hmm. And we need to pray for you. Mm -hmm. What do you need us to pray for you for? And at that moment, when Abel interpreted, she began to streams of tears pouring down her face. That she was a single mother with three children, taking care of them all by herself. And that she only makes enough money to buy a minimum amount of food and housing. That she is a struggling single mom. And I looked at her and I said, I was raised by a single mom. And she had a little boy in her hands. I said, I was that little boy. And she just began to break down and, and weep. And I told her, I said, you need to learn to use God's word to cover your heart, protect it, and fill your mind. I said, then God will give you everything you need. I said, make him your man first. Then God will give you the man that you really need. And we prayed for her. She was encouraged. And you know, that's, that's like a snapshot. It's a microcosm of simultaneous things that were happening all around us. Matt, do you know how much money was, was found? I didn't hear I th I th it was like 10 bucks in American dollars and then another uh, 50 or 60 pesos. Uh, when you find 10 bucks, it might be a trivial thing. You might just think, oh, yay. Uh, 10 bucks there buys 20 soft tacos. 20, you know. I mean, it would have fed her family for a few days. Uh, that's not a small thing. When you lack the courage to do what is right, but in your foundation, in your core, you love the Lord, He will work around your weakness to get you what you need. Amen. That woman left well fed, spiritually and physically. Isn't that cool? That's amazing. There's something else I want to share while Matt's up here. Uh, today I want to talk to you a little bit about a prescribed way. You know, when you get a prescription from a doctor, it's usually not optional how you follow it, right? If it says take it three times a day with food and you don't, there can be consequences to that. Our God has a prescribed way. And very often things happen to us to let us know that we are in his prescribed way or we are not in his prescribed way. And while we were out there, there was a large missionary team. They weren't working with us. They were simply staying in a place we were familiar with. Uh, was it 100 people? Yeah, yeah it was about 100 people. A considerably larger group than us, right? And uh, a report happened. Uh, a man who lived at the facility called AIM, uh, Adventures and Missions, right? Uh, got a phone call from Mexico City. He was an indigenous person and he got a phone call and it said the cartel has your family in Mexico City. Uh, they're going to kill them unless you deposit $2,000 into an account. If you deposit $2,000 into an account, we will let them go. Now the director of the facility was with us, helping us, serving us, a godly man. Uh, he works in unimaginably difficult situations, and I'm not speaking about the poverty that he works with. I'm speaking about the board that he has to answer to. <laughs> yeah, have you ever heard of deacon possession? <laughs> if you don't understand that, it's okay. Let it, let it go. He was away. So what happened is this family, begrieved that they're thinking uh, their loved ones are dying in Mexico, goes and deposits $2,000. I can't tell you how much money that is to them. Might as well be 50000 They do it. I don't know how they got it all together, who they borrowed it from, what they sold, what they did, what they borrowed, but they did it. 
only to get another phone call that said, now we want more, or they're going to begin dying. It turns out that this entire thing was a prank. That the robbing did occur, but that there was no cartel that had the family. Unfortunately, the missionary team that was there, the hundred mighty great white warriors from the north that had come in to save and evangelize Mexico, heard the report about the cartel having gotten the family, the false report, got scared and went home a couple days early. And on their way home, called all of their friends and relatives and said, Oh, the cartel is so bad in Mexico, you can't even come down here. We had to cut our trip short. So that the man who runs AIM had to come back to a family that is financially destroyed, a ministry that is now under attack and lies from the enemy, is the ministry supported by people coming in for missions trips. And the word that is being spread by a hundred cowards is that the cartel is too strong in Mexico for Jesus to handle. Do you think there's something wrong with American Christianity? There was not even any truth in this. The streets were empty in Matamoros. The marketplaces were empty. The border agent looked at me and laughed. He says, you don't watch TV much, do you? I said, no, I don't. What he meant was, you must not be a typical American TV watcher if you're down here. Matthew had a dream before we left. Tell tell him about it. Yeah. Um... The night before, it would be Wednesday night, um, you know, sitting and talking with Cass and uh, trying to make sure we uh, got everything in line with the house and the kids and all that. And uh, there begins to rise this kind of unsettling feeling, and it's, it's somewhat natural. I mean, you hear the stuff on TV and all that kind of stuff, what's going on in Mexico. And, you know, this begins to have a bit of a bite to it, somewhat truth. And I didn't want to say anything that would... Uh, fuel any uh, additional fears inside of Cass of me being away or anything like that. But I could see fear starting to kind of stir inside of her. So I go to bed and I have a very, very vivid dream. And usually I, I do dream, but as you can see, I, I need words to worship and remember how to sing songs. So I can't even remember my dreams. I'll wake up the next morning as an extremely vivid dream where we were all, uh, our group, at the AIM facility and facing towards the main road. So you turn off this main road, go about a mile in, and what I saw approaching from the right and from the left were these giant, giant wolves with red eyes and what the look and demeanor they had, they were stalking, seeking to devour. Mm -hmm. And they simultaneously turned down that road leading into the AIM facility and fear began to rise where we were. <coughs> but what our group did, it's not like when you, when you realize you're about to get into a fight, you gain your stance, you take a step back and kind of prepare for it. That's what it felt like our whole group did. And next thing you know, we began to get on our knees and began to pray. And as we prayed, it's, as, and it's no different than the biblical model in the Older Testament where man's strength was removed and God's reign of power and freedom rained down. When we stepped back and prayed, I saw what, well, I guess you would equate to Sodom and Gomorrah being destroyed by these hailstones, these fiery hailstones, and it hit and destroyed <coughs> these two wolves that were approaching. <coughs> I had this dream. I didn't want to tell anybody because uh, the, the way that it could be interpreted of, oh, Matt's got a dream that we're all going to die, but God will save us. <laughs> <laughs> so I kind of kept it to myself. And what I should have done is at least share it with Eric. 
But this is where it came about, and this is how we treat prophecy. In, in some regard, if I would have anticipated this, I would be looking more for every moment to be scared, settled, <laughs> rather than paying attention to the woman who dropped the money on the ground. So what happened was, we all went back Saturday morning for the sole purpose of encouraging this family, the family who had been robbed. Richard, uh, the leader of AIM, left early that morning to go get them and bring them back, and we were all convening around 10 o'clock. When we got there, we were already began to worship. Now, we started praise and worship and created an atmosphere of worship, and they walked into it. We wanted something that they could be refreshed by, encouraged. Can you imagine the weight? And honestly, after it all transpired, you feel like a dummy. But they, they're no different than us. How would we react? In fact, you can see the hundred or so that were there that are Americans and the way they reacted. At least they could have done is taken up an offering before they left. Yes. <laughs> exactly. So as we're worshiping and I'm feeling that God's, I mean, it was good this morning. Take what we felt this morning and multiply it times ten. Yeah. And then follow and direct it at an enemy. That's exactly what worship felt like yeah, Saturday morning. And as we begin to enter into that thick realm of praise and worship, it, that dream came back to me. And I realized, because not only was this one attempt to attack one family, but someone, another family, received the exact type of phone call, and that's how it was discovered that it was a hoax. And as we begin to worship, I felt God's presence just coming and raining down His fury on the enemy's plans. So what happens then is a husband, a wife, three children, two children, two children, all walk into the meeting while this is happening. They were the ones that were robbed. A prophecy comes forth from a young lady who doesn't normally prophesy, and we don't want to point her out because it embarrasses her, but it's Linda. (laughs) (laughs) The reason that the word says these things must be done for the edification and encouragement of the body is because what she prophesied address their situation and they didn't know her and she didn't know them and the man began to break down and cry because the prophecy was all about God training them for battle another prophecy came forth about taking stones from the middle of the Jordan and setting up as a testimony that their God would use this event to show his power and his saving deliverance in their lives and they would minister that everywhere the family began to dance and excited and they were healed in that moment Their lives felt like it had come to an end. $2,000 may not feel that way to you, but if you only make four in a year, or three in a year, think about what that would be like. They left excited. They left encouraged. And they left full of power. It's important that you don't know the people who left early. But it is important also that you never be them. See, there is a prescribed way. The reason I wanted Matthew to share his dream is what that did for us in that moment is it gave us the confidence. No, we are right where we're supposed to be. We're doing exactly what God intended. Not because I saw it in a crystal ball, but because He warned me by His Spirit in a way that I didn't understand until it was happening. And it let me know that I was right where I was supposed to be, when I was supposed to be there, and this was God. Amen? Amen. Isn't that a good thing? Yes. When we deny ourselves these things for a more dignified form of worship, we greatly err. And then we produce people who will run at a mere report of the enemy without ever actually even seeing them. Would it surprise you to know that those churches were not spirit-filled? 
No. Doesn't surprise you, does it? So, well, why would you why would you make that distinction? Let me be clear. I don't like Charismatics. I don't like Pentecostals. I don't like the Methodists. I don't like the Baptists. I love followers of Jesus wherever they come from. But what we're always looking to do is write down our prescribed way, set it in stone, and demand that everyone else be like us and then form committees to argue about who is most right. We want to define what we know about God in 14 neat little points, and if somebody else doesn't like them, they can't be part of our group. This is ridiculous, powerless, fleshly Christianity. What is powerful is to find out what the Lord requires of you as an individual, what the Lord requires of you as a church, and move in any direction that it would require. This is what the Lord is looking for, a church that does not have square wheels, that can't move, that are stuck in ruts, but a church that will move in any direction that He sees because we did not plan to go to AIM on Saturday. We planned to be at hospitals handing out food. We plan to be in the dumps handing out food. We plan to go with a pastor to go do certain things. And our plans got canceled. Well, we could have just went to the marketplace and shopped. We could have went home early. But our God had a prescribed way that if we missed, His will would not be done. See, we forget that. We act like there is not a war going on. We act like it doesn't matter what we do. God is so big, God is so powerful that no matter what you do, no matter how sinful, no damage is done. I want to tell you when Israel will not cross the Jordan, people's lives are lost. I want to tell you when we do not do what God wants us to do, there is loss being suffered to the kingdom of God. The fact that God is able to overcome our weaknesses, the fact that God is able to restore the fortunes of His people when His will is not done, does not mean that His will is optional. What we tend to see is people that sin, that ignore His will, and because mercy occurs in their life, they simply go, oh, this was actually God's will all along. Well, you're deceived. That is a deception. It's a deception that condemns you to repeat the same cycle. I want to share with you about a prescribed way. In Leviticus 9, if you would like to turn, I would appreciate that. That's awesome. If you don't have a Bible or you just simply trust me that much, I rarely lie when I preach. We're not going to go very long today. There's a few things that I want to share. And then I want to baptize anybody that would want to be baptized. And if your concern is the weather, you either need to put your concern to death or wait till you have better understanding. If your concern is your clothing, you either need to put your concern to death or wait till you have better understanding if your concern is what people think. Let's just be honest. None of those concerns are so powerful that they should overwhelm your desire to give your life to Jesus. And if they do, you probably haven't given your life to Jesus. We ought to just be honest about these things. If you need a baptismal that is at a certain temperature and a pastor that is a certain age, certain height, a certain look, then where does your devotions really lie? See, because the real followers of Jesus commit to crucify themselves daily. And if you can't endure cold, you might be deceived. Leviticus 9.15 Aaron then brought the offering that was for the people. He took the goat for the people's sin offering and slaughtered it and offered it as a sin offering as he did with the first one. He brought the burnt offering and offered it in the prescribed way. He also brought grain offering, took a handful of it and burned it on the altar in addition to the morning's burnt offering. 
When Aaron was the head of the Levitical priesthood, the Aaronic priesthood, even Aaron submitted to the directions that God had given him through Moses to do it in a very specific way. What's interesting about that is in the very next chapter, Aaron's sons did not follow a prescribed way. When you look at Leviticus 10, like those first three verses, you find out that Nadab and Abihu did something that was contrary to God's command. God was displeased and death resulted. When we deviate from God's prescribed way for our life, death results. You say, but Eric, I've missed it before and I didn't die. Well, praise God, that's grace that you didn't instantly fall over and become dead. But a certain part of your faith died that moment. A certain part of your ability to trust God in every situation died that moment. A certain part of the fruit that God has for your life dies in that instance. You know why? You didn't get to see the will of God done. You didn't get to be encouraged by it. You didn't get to find out that I can go knock down giants. Instead, we chose comfort over crucifixion. It cannot be that way. There is a prescribed way that must be followed. When I say prescribed way, and I'm going to read to you some of these examples, there's a problem with it. You begin to look and go, but wait a minute, that's law. And law is just do this and don't do this. It was the prescribed way. If you feel like your faith has risen above a place that was the Mosaic revelation or the law, then let's, let's dig into that a little bit. What is your prescribed way? And how do you know the difference between it and any old thing that seems right to you? Or anything that tickles your ear? Or anything that is pleasing to your flesh? Even in the law, you had to decide what was God's will for you. My oxen is in a ditch and it is the Sabbath, which is the greater command. My son needs to be circumcised, but it is the eighth day, which is uh, eighth day falls on a Sabbath, which is the greater command. These were questions that were presented to Jesus so that we would know how to walk in a prescribed way, even when it was not written on tablets of stone. So you have to have a relationship with the king. You have to be intimate with him. You have to know what he would desire. And even when you do, you may make mistakes, but that's what Teshuvah is for. That is what repentance is for. It's what course correction is for. Look at First Chronicles 15. I'm going to ask you to look at it because probably you don't have it memorized. First Chronicles 15, starting in the 13th verse. It was because you Levites did not bring up the ark the first time that the Lord our God broke out in anger against us. We did not inquire of Him about how to do it in the prescribed way. Does anybody know what event precedes this? A man named Uzzah has a good thought. The ark of God symbolizing the presence of God is on a new cart because new has got to be better than old. It's pulled by oxen because they're so strong and more efficient and it would take so much labor for a man to do it. And the oxen stumbled because he's never designed to carry the presence of God. So a man reaches out to steady the ark. Isn't this where most of Christianity is today? Lord, the way that your word says to do it, I mean, especially all that spiritual gift stuff, I mean, it's just awkward, you know? We want to steady his presence. We want to make sure it's efficient, streamlined, get people in, get people out, all so that we maximize 
the potential to hear the Word. But then whose Word are they really hearing? God struck a man dead because he did not do it in the prescribed way. His name was Uzzah. God cared very much the way in which His presence entered into David's tabernacle. He cared about the way that men handled His presence. And He killed somebody to keep it from being done incorrectly. I wonder whether any of us would survive the next service. If this does nothing else, it ought to place in you a certain reverence that says, you know, it matters how I respond to God's presence. It matters what we do in the name of the Lord. It is not simply optional or a matter of personal opinion or this church's or that church's doctrine. There is a prescribed way. Our King requires of us that we seek out His prescribed way for our lives. Turn with me to Second Chronicles. There's lots of seats, sweetheart. Go sit next to that one. Jennifer, show where to sit. In 2 Chronicles 4, we'll be in the 19th verse. Solomon also made all the furnishings that were in God's temple. The golden altar, the tables on which the bread of the presence, the lampstands of pure gold and their lamps, to burn in front of the inner sanctuary as prescribed. Our God went through such detail that He said where you were to put furnishings in His tabernacle and what you were to put on those furnishings and how many times a day you were to trim them, clean them, and minister before them. A God of detail. A God that cared how every minor thing was done. Now, if you have a Western mentality that says this was simply to bind them up and show them their need for the Messiah, you're missing the greater portion of the revelation. More than ten times in Deuteronomy alone, God says that He is teaching them these things so that it will go well with them. The aim of the law was to find life, not just to be bound up, but in that pursuit of life, you were supposed to come to a, regular, a revelation. Without help from God's Spirit, without the redemption of His Son, I could never get all of this right. That was supposed to be the revelation. But this morning where I want you to look is that God cared even where the furniture was placed. How about this one? Go back to 1 Chronicles. You'll be in the 23rd verse. I'm sorry, 23rd chapter, 28th verse. The duty of the Levites was to help Aaron's descendants in the service of the temple of the Lord. To be in charge of the courtyards, the side rooms, the purification of all the sacred things, and the performance of the duties at the house of God. They were in charge of the bread sat on the table, the flour for the grain offerings, the unleavened wafers, the baking and the mixing, and all the measurements of quantity and size. Could you imagine that God cared how much grams of flour went into an offering, but he did. They were also to stand every morning to thank and praise the Lord. They were to do the same thing in the evening, and whenever the burnt offerings were presented to the Lord on the Sabbaths and at the new moon festivals and appointed feast, they were to serve before the Lord regularly in the proper number and in the proper way prescribed for them. Well, what if one of the priests decided to stay home because, you know, it was raining? He had a late night. The baby kept him up. How do we have a proper number in the proper way if God's people aren't obedient? But God had a proper number that He wanted in the temple. He had a proper way that it had to be done. Think about that. This means that our God cares about the minute 
details of your life as they relate to obedience. We act like he only cares about the big things, right? Well, what are the big things? Like how we raise our children? Is that a one-time event or is that every minute detail of the life? What are the big things? Like who we marry? <laughs> Was that just an event? Or is that a covenant that lasts your whole life? What are the big things? I would say that all of our life is spiritual. All of our life contains every detail that He cares about. This is why the Word says, As many as are led by His Spirit are the sons of God. There is no way to find out His prescribed way for your life if you are not seeking Him daily for bread that cannot be eaten with your mouth. Bread that causes you to live in the prescribed way. His Word for you daily. But I want to tell you the truth as Americans... What we want is somebody else to go seek that bread and then just give it to us. Give it to us in a service each week. If you could boil it down to about 30 minutes, we'd appreciate that. In fact, whatever the minimum that we can get away with doing and, you know, not go to hell, we would prefer that. Pretty soon in America, you will see drive through church services. I promise it. There, there's almost no question. If there is a mark of the beast, you will be able to use your mark to give an offering in the church. I, there's almost no question because the church is completely overrun already with the world and its fleshly programs. There's a prescribed way for your life, period. It means God cares where you work. He cares where you live. He cares where you fellowship. He cares whether or not you're obedient when He says to do something because it is His prescribed way. In Nehemiah 12... <coughs> You don't have to turn there. I promise I won't lie to you. In Nehemiah 12, verse 24, it would be good to take a note. And the leaders and the Levites were Heshaviah, Sherebiah, Jeshua of Kittimil, and their associates, who stood opposite them to give praise and thanksgiving. One section responded to the other as prescribed by David, the man of God. When thinking about how to worship, the God of Israel spoke to a king and said, I want these men to stand on one side, these men to stand on the other. I want one to sing and the other to sing a response. Would you think that God would care about something like that? He cares very much about how you worship Him. So what we could do is we could write in stone right here on the corner of the wall, we could call it LCMS Prescribed Way. We could decide what we think is His prescribed way about everything and then write it in stone never to be changed. It would simply be lifeless, dead rules right there. And we would feel very confident that we could point to a Scripture about each one and go, hmm, this is what the Word says. Never mind the fact that God may desire to do a new thing, put a new song, put a new direction in your heart. And when a couple hundred years goes by, oh, we would all be so sure we were right, and yet there would be no fruit on our trees. You could look at world missions and see your denomination was no longer what it once was. You could look at your church's youth group and see that it is no longer where it once was because the prescribed way requires you to interact with Him on a daily basis, which is what He has been about all along. You ever been given one of those novels in school that you had to read and then answer a test about? So you went and bought the Cliff Notes? And you thought, this will save me from doing all of that work. Unfortunately, most of Christianity is simply looking for the Cliff Notes. What you're required to do is interact with the living Word in a living way 
as you live on a daily basis. This means that on Monday, it may be okay for you to go to such and such place and do such and such a thing, but on Tuesday, the Lord of the universe has the right to say, no, don't go that way. Go down on the road towards Gaza because there is a man that I want you to speak to. And you don't form a committee. You don't ask everybody what they think about it. You have to know your God well enough to know this is Him speaking. Well, how does that happen? Jesus said, my sheep know my voice. But you don't understand, Jesus. Our rule book that we wrote on the wall in stone says you don't even do that anymore. The only way that you speak is through your word. And then, truthfully, they segment the word to the point where this part no longer applies, that part no longer applies. See, what you don't understand is there's multiple numbers of dispensations and God did that then but not now and blah, 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 blah. And what results is death. Because we're no longer following God's prescribed way. Every generation has an obligation to embrace the living God and say, what do you require of me right now? If this were not true, where's the scriptural precedent for spitting a loogie into mud and making an eyeball with it? Hmm? Could you say then that Jesus was unscriptural? Where's the scriptural precedent for a man walking upon water? Where have you ever seen that before? So was Jesus unscriptural? Where's the scriptural precedent that says, look, the best way to start your ministry? Go have a debate with Satan that lasts 40 days long in the desert without eating. Where's that scriptural precedent? He was led by the Spirit into all of those things. And it does not contradict Scripture, but it's not explicitly stated that you must do it in Scripture. So how do you know? You must be led by His Spirit. In Second Chronicles 29, I'm going to read you another one. It's verse 25. He stationed the Levites in the temple of the Lord with cymbals, harps, lyres, in the way prescribed by David and Gad the king's seer and Nathan the prophet. This was the commandment of the Lord through the prophets. So the Levites stood ready with David's instruments and the priests with their trumpets. Do you mean that God cared what kind of instruments were played in His service? He did. So then do we need to go find out what a liar is? We need to go get one? Brad, you want to play the liar in here? I worked my whole life not to be a liar. That's a different kind of lie. This was Lear, Jennifer said. Lear, like a jet. No. This was for a specific group of people during a specific time. And you know what? It, it changed even in Israel's history. Sometimes David ordered worship. Sometimes Moses ordered worship. And there were different priestly groups who did it. Sometimes the musicians were paid. Sometimes they weren't. Sometimes they worshipped in front of a tent. And sometimes they worshipped in front of a stone tabernacle but ha or temple. How would you know what to do? Somebody has to hear from God. There's a prescribed way. And while God doesn't change from age to age, what does change is what He tells His people to do and how He tells them to do it. For instance, what is modest in uh, the year 1200? What's that look like? Because most of you women would not pass that test. What is modest in the year 2000? Those are different things that are culturally discerned. How do you know? And how many wars have been fought in a church over whether or not women cover their hair, whether or not they wear gold or braided, jewelry or braided hair? How many wars have been fought over whether or not pants are acceptable? We must find our prescribed way. Say, well, how do we know this one says this and this one says this? Well, maybe his prescribed way is different than yours. After all, God orders the number of a man's footsteps. 
why not just give us a rule book? Why not just say this is what you must do and this is what... Because it requires no relationship. How many people do you know that really desperately yearn for a relationship with the Lord? Because I meet them all the time that have been all the way through ministry school, as Gabe and Debbie said, and they don't have one. Their knowledge of the Lord is like somebody else's knowledge of my wife. I can tell them how beautiful she is. I can tell them how much I enjoy her company. I can tell them stories of our courtship together. But they don't know her like I do because I'm in relationship with her. Most people's relationship with Jesus is a third-party relationship. That is not the prescribed way. When he tore the curtain of the temple from top to bottom, he was trying to bring you in a very personal way into relationship with him. One that affects every aspect of your life. Not one that buys whatever kind of house you want without regard to what he wants and then says it's the Lord. Not one that chooses whatever job in whatever place that you want without regard to him. You say, well, but he'll open and close doors. He shouldn't have to pin you in like an animal. You were in relationship with him. I said, but Eric, that is so hard. Yeah, walking with God... Is light and easy to the spirit and very hard to the flesh. It requires you to crucify it every day. I want to be honest. The very first thought that came to my mind when I saw additional needs in Mexico is, but I've already given so much. And then when we found additional needs yet, I thought, but Lord, I had other plans for these things. Do you think he cares about my plans as much as I should care about his? Well, am I just in some special class as a preacher? Aren't you all priests? Aren't you a kingdom of priests? A nation of priests? Well, then He cares. He cares. And as He brings you into a deeper level of thought about these things, a deeper level of obedience is required because to He who has been given much, much is required. I want to tell you what even a king in Persia had to say. This is Ezra 7, 21-23. You don't have to turn there. I promise. I won't lie to you. Now I... King Artaxerxes ordered all the treasuries of the trans-Euphrates to provide with diligence whatever Ezra the priest, a teacher of the law of the God of heaven, may ask of you. Up to a hundred talents of silver, a hundred cores of wheat, a hundred baths of wine, a hundred baths of olive oil, and salt without limit. Whatever the God of heaven has prescribed, let it be done with diligence for the temple of the God of heaven." For why should there be wrath against the realm of the king and his sons? Even a Persian king understood when you do not do what God says, when he says to do it, in the way that he says to do it, wrath is the result. Death is the result. So he said when you find out what God's prescribed way is, do it with all diligence. Next time somebody tells you that there is a permissive will of God, Laugh and walk the other way. It'll be a good experience for them. Next time somebody tells you that it really doesn't matter, God will bless whatever you do, laugh and walk the other way. They've been deceived. It does matter. There are costs. It does hurt. Death always results from disobedience. She said, but I didn't drop dead. Adam didn't drop dead the moment he ate of that tree either. But all humanity has been dying from that one bad choice, haven't they? Yes. Our lives are about giving up the right to choose for ourselves what we do and be led by His Spirit in a way that allows Him to choose. Is God your pocket genie who does what you tell Him to do? Then it's 
sound like that when we say my personal Savior? Because I have a little personal air conditioner, a personal cooler, a personal guitar, a personal car. He's not your personal Savior. He's the Savior of the world who saved you personally. He didn't belong to you like a pocket knife. You belong to Him like a pocket knife. Even our terminology gets kind of silly about these things. No Jew would ever say, God is my personal Savior. They would say He's the Savior of Israel, and I'm a member of Israel. He saved me. See, we claim ownership to heaven itself. We act as if our actions have no consequence, and we can do whatever we want. And why do we have this birthright? Because we're Americans. Say, Eric, do you not like being American? No, I love it. It gives me a chance to take things to other places. Friends, we are the rich young ruler, and we better wake up. Our God said, any of you that does not give up everything cannot be my disciple. So that is such a hard word. What does it mean? You are supposed to struggle with that. You are supposed to be in agony over it, with fear and trembling, saying, Lord, I am willing to give up everything and I will prove it. How do I start? What is your prescribed way? And I'll tell you, most of the time, the prescribed way works like this. Whatever would hurt the most is what he asks. Because this is how he knows that he is your Lord. You have a position. You feel like you're being used. You have these talents. And the Lord asks you to go to another place and lay it aside and become a student. Well, that's how you know he's Lord. Praise God. Many of you have been willing to do that. When you sit at the foot of the table, he will raise you to the head. But when you sit at the head of the table and declare that it is God's will, will not accept correction, he won't even use you. It's laughable. It's laughable. You're holding a feast in your own honor. First Peter said something amazing. I do encourage you to turn to this. It'll be First Peter 2. We're going to start in verse 5. <coughs> Tell me when you're there. There. Can't see beat all of you there. It's like his fifth service there. in here. He's already beating all of you there. there. I don't want you to compete with anybody and anything except to love and sacrifice and proclaim Jesus more and more and more. This is the best kind of competition you can have. I can tell you, our ministry squeezed several thousand dollars out of Nathan <laughs> that he wasn't prepared to give, but he didn't want to be outpaced by us. He squeezed several thousand dollars out of us. We were not prepared to give, but I didn't want to be outpaced by him. And the result of this kind of godly competition is more people ate that day. You think that's something the Lord could be pleased with? Is there flesh that can really glory in that? Into seeing who can go the furthest in humbling themselves? That's a competition I invite any day. 1 Peter 2.5 You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. If you, friends, are this... Spiritual priesthood. And every detail of the priest's garments, every detail of their daily life, every detail of their sacrifices were prescribed. Do you think that God does not have a prescription for your life? Of course He does. He has a detailed prescription for the events of your life. If we're offering spiritual sacrifices and the natural sacrifices had to be offered in a certain way at a certain time by certain people... Why do we think they're optional for us? Why do we think, oh, it's a, I missed that opportunity, but, you know, I'm, I mean, God's merciful. 
Well, he is merciful. Is that really an excuse to miss the opportunity? If you ask me, Eric, I should have prophesied this and I didn't in the meeting, I'm going to say, well, stop talking to me and go tell them. If it's been a year since you missed God's opportunity, then I'm going to say, look, His mercy reigns, but don't you miss it again. Right? But we have this idea that when the Lord tells us to do something, we can kind of camp on it and just wait and see whether or not, you know, we really want to do it. That gives time for circumstances to outweigh your faith. It gives you the opportunity to reason out in your mind what God intends you to simply trust. You're not allowed to form a committee with yourself and decide whether you're going to do what God said. And there are some non-negotiables in the Word, period. So, Eric, what are those non-negotiables? Why do you ask me for cliff notes? Find them. You got a Bible? I preach about them all of the time. And yet many still find them absolutely negotiable. You know, I'll support the ministry financially when I get into a better position. And yet Jesus is Lord. Really? Why don't we just say he's, He's partly Lord? In fact, why don't we call him, he's as much Lord of my life as he is of my finances? Well, because that would be convicting. And God, we don't want to do that. We might preach to smaller crowds. Would you be embarrassed if the events of, I don't know, the last month were written on your chest for everybody to see? Because the Bible describes you like a fruit tree, that everybody ought to know you by your deeds. The truth is, is men with eyes to see already see it. Jesus knows your flaws. He loves you anyway. But obedience is not optional. He will forgive a woman who is caught in the very act of adultery, but his word to her is the same as it is to you. Go forth and sin no more. He will heal a man that's been crippled for 38 years, but his word to him is the same as it is to you. Stop sinning or something worse will happen to you. Somewhere in all of the ridiculous preaching about a new dispensation called the church age, we have lost touch with the fact that the same God is God over the Older and the Newer Testament. In fact, there's no division. I like to call it God's Word. If He doesn't change yesterday, today, forever, then why do we segment His workings into neat little groupings? If you haven't noticed, I'm not a dispensationalist. Not at all. If that means something different to you than what I'm describing or you think I'm talking about your high school or something, get over yourself. I believe that the Word speaks to you in your situation no matter what age you live in and that you have an obligation to wrestle with it. You have an obligation to look at it and say, what does this Word mean to me? And I don't think you can write off any of it. Say, but this was for an Israelite. Are you telling me that it has no application in your life? No matter what it is, we're supposed to wrestle with this. God has prescribed things for us. In Joshua 8, he says something. You can write this down because I'm going to summarize it for you because I want to go baptize people. In Joshua 8, the 30th verse, he begins by saying, Then Joshua built on Mount Ebal an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, as Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded the Israelites. He built it according to what was written in the book of the Law of Moses. An altar of uncut stones. Why on earth would God care whether the stones were cut? When He built an altar, He wanted it out of natural materials. Irregularly shaped stones. This is because when you go to stack one irregularly shaped stone upon another, it is not systematic. Isn't it interesting we call our theology systematic theology? It is not systematic. 
In fact, you have to examine each stone. You have to look at its strengths, its weaknesses. You have to see how one relates to another, much like you do in marriage counseling. You look to see how this person relates to the other one, how one's weakness could be complemented by the other's strength. In other words, you have to look to see how they fit together. When you built an altar in ancient Israel, you had to look to see how the stones were supposed to fit together, not make them all just like the next one. You know what the first mass production of stones mentioned in the Bible was? Mud bricks. They made the Tower of Babel out of it. How pleased was God with that? God wants to assemble you as uncut stones. Diversity honors Him. It honors Him. But there can be a misunderstanding in this. Listen to the way that it says this in Deuteronomy 29. Just listen to me. If you want to write it down, it's Deuteronomy 29, 19. But listen to it. Think about it. You've just heard a blessing about your diversity honoring God. Your uniqueness honoring God. This is just how I am. When such a person hears the words of this oath, he invokes a blessing on himself and therefore thinks, I will be safe even though I persist in going my own way. This will bring disaster on the water land as well as the dry. The Lord will never be willing to forgive him. Did you hear that? The Lord will never be willing to forgive him. His wrath and his zeal will burn against that man. All the curses written in this book will fall upon him, and the Lord will blot out his name from under heaven. The Lord will single him out from all the tribes of Israel for disaster according to all the curses of the covenant written in this book of the law. Does that scare you? It does me. So, well, how does it work, Eric? If you're saying there's a prescribed way, but you're also saying I'm individually an uncut stone, what do I do? You have to figure out where you fit in the temple of God. You have to be willing to interact with other people to see where the Lord's approval lies. Come on now, when you try to set two sharp edges on each other, it doesn't work so well, does it? So you just give up and you say, I'm never going to be around that person again? You just segment into little groups and say, this is what we believe, this is what we believe. Oh, well, this is what we believe. And it splits and splits and splits and splits to where how many churches are on this one road out here? It gets to be absurd. We are supposed to wrestle with how we fit with one another. But we are supposed to fit with one another. This may mean some of you needs to go so that more of the Lord can be there. But what it does not mean is that if I have this kind of Bible, all of you must have it. If I think this certain way, like, Pastor wears a beard, so I have to wear a beard. Pastor wears these obnoxious cowboy boots. I have to do that. This cookie-cutter Christianity is not what God wants. You can be as individual as He made you, but be following His prescribed way for your life. And guess what happens? This meshing starts to occur. You find out that your brother who sees something slightly different because God has put a certain emphasis in, in his life is working seamlessly with you. And together, you're rising to become a temple that God dwells in. That sounds like work, though, doesn't it? Wouldn't it be so much easier just to go find people that already think exactly like you do? Can't we just agree that everybody who meets in here is going to follow these specific items? How many times have you run into somebody and they say, let's just pick an easy one. I'm Catholic. Really? Do you think the Pope's infallible? No, but I'm Catholic. Really? How Catholic are you then? Nine-tenths? Eight-tenths? Seven-tenths? Because it's dogma that the Pope's infallible. At least he has the ability to speak that way ex cathedra. Now, obviously, I'm not Catholic. I think it's a ridiculous lie. I'm not even sure that any of the upper leadership in that church is saved. 
How many times have you met somebody, though, that claimed to be something? How about Baptist? I was Baptist for many years, but I didn't think dancing was wrong. Well, how Baptist was I then? Came to a place where I was Baptist, but I didn't believe once saved, always saved was true anymore. Well, then how Baptist was I? We tend to try to group into groupings where we think we best fit. I think the only place that you can fit is your prescribed way. Say, but how do I know that? It requires you to be in contact with the living God on a daily basis. There's something else that He has provided for your benefit. Isaiah 58 says something that I'm going to read to you and then I'm going to tell you about what's been provided for your benefit. Isaiah 58:13. If you keep your feet from breaking the Sabbath and from doing as you please on my holy day, if you call the Sabbath a delight, and the Lord's holy day honorable. And you honor it by not going your own way and not doing as you please or speaking idle words. Then you will find your joy in the Lord. And I will cause you to ride on the height of the land and to feast on the inheritance of your father, Jacob. The mouth of the Lord has spoken. Our God is looking for something. It's for you to resist your own way and find out what His is. It's for you to resist everyone's pressure for you to conform to what they think is right. There's a danger in preaching something like this. Some of you could cross your arms then and simply become uncorrectable. The Lord says in Ephesians 4 that He called some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be pastors, some to be teachers, and some to be evangelists. Do you know why He called those men? To help you mature until we all reach a unity in the faith. So there are balances and there are checks that are placed in your life. There are people that are put in your life that are supposed to help you find your prescribed way. It doesn't mean that you become uncorrectable. It doesn't mean that nobody has a right to speak into your life. It doesn't mean that only you can hear from God for you. But what it does mean is that you have to say there is no cliff notes for my life. I'm to wake up each day and say, Lord, what do you have for me? By the way, the book of Judges, the book of Judges contains maybe the most difficult scriptures in all of the Bible. If you've ever read about the Levite and his concubine, that's enough to crush a new believer right there. Uh, Not to mention Jephthah and his daughter, or so many other stories that I'd rather you not even have to go look up. I mean, if you don't already know them, it'd be best that you discover them at a pace that God can work with you with. You know what the last line in the book of Judges is? It defines the whole book. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as he saw fit. When you lead men to do only as they see fit, rather than to be led by His Spirit, to be encouraged and corrected by the leaders God has put in their life, horrible things happen. Because Proverbs say that there's a way that seems right to a man, and in the end there's destruction. So where is the balance between the way that seems right to you and your individually prescribed way? It requires relationship. And one way you're in relationship with the living God is by being in relationship with His people. One way you're further in relationship with Him is by being pastored by the fivefold ministry. Another way that you're in relationship with Him is through daily contact with Him. That's why the Word says, do not forsake the gathering of believers. And then when you look at your gathering of believers, you need to ask, is this an environment where iron is sharpening iron? Or is this simply sage on a stage? I sit and listen to Him and there is my service to God. 
one holy man dressed in holy clothes in a holy place on a holy day for a holy fee. You need to be a part of a body that is living, that is active. If nobody has walked up to you in the last year in your life and said, Brother, I'm not sure that's right. I love you. I'm going to support you no matter what you do, provided it's not sin, but I don't think that's right. You, you really ought to pray about it. Then you might not be in a body of Christ, or maybe you are, but you are not participating in it. The body is supposed to interact. We're supposed to encourage, strengthen each other. And it's all supposed to be done under the guidance of God's government in the church. And I want to tell you a secret. A man asked me today why I didn't ins- yesterday why I didn't insist on being called pastor. I was a salesman and I didn't want people to refer to me as salesman, Eric. My pastor was a welder before that. He didn't refer to himself as welder. Hi, I'm welder Eric Stevens. I think that a pastor's function ought to be so clear from his life that there is no question. I don't turn down the title. But if you require yourself to have a title of any kind in the church... Maybe it's because your life is lacking that function and you're worried people won't see it. All the things that John Wesley said, one of them he said, is you could call me a scoundrel, but you will never confer upon me the title bishop. (laughs) You know who he said it to? To his very best friends who had been sent to America and their ministry had been received with such success that they allowed people to call them bishop. He rebuked them publicly in writing. And today that church is filled with people that have very exalted titles. If you have an associate pastor and you have a senior pastor, who's the pastor above that? We're going to have one that we call Little God Pastor. How about Napoleon Pastor? The body of Christ is a round table. Jesus is the head of the round table. Hmm? How do we know where the head is? You find Jesus in every situation. The body of Christ is a round table that Jesus is the head of. 1 John says, Dear friends, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. Anyone who does what is good is from God. Anyone who does what is evil has not seen God, meaning he hadn't understood it. Hebrews says, Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Not just follow their orders. Men of God don't order people to do anything. They lead by example and you imitate their trust in God. Churches suffer from either dictatorial spiritual leaders who see themselves as Napoleon or men who would tell you anything as long as you keep your hiney in the seat and every once in a while throw some change in a plate. The body of Christ is not this way. The body of Christ is full of people who are searching for their prescribed way to walk this out. Corinthians 4 says something, and I promise we're closing. Therefore I urge you to imitate me. For this reason I am sending to you Timothy, my son, whom I love. For he is faithful in the Lord. He will remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees with what I teach everywhere. If Paul was imitating Jesus, and Timothy was imitating Jesus in Paul, you could send a representative, and it would remind people of the way that you lived. Here's our last blessing for you. Read this one. Okay? It's a little pet peeve of mine that people close their Bibles, put them away before service is over. It lets me know that you're completely closed to anything else the Lord would have to say or it's not important enough to write down and read. So please don't do that. You know what else don't do? If somebody gets saved, don't leave the building without hugging them. This is how the world the church acts. 
don't dare leave when somebody's being baptized. There's nothing that could possibly occur in your life that could be more important than celebrating with the saints over those things. And I've been in churches most of my life where we have three people get saved and 90% of the church walks out the back door because they don't want to waste the time to go introduce themselves to them. Let me just go ahead and tell you that is not a church. You don't have to take my word for it. You can read the word and it will explain it to you. Unless you're not interested in reading the word, then you can continue to go to those places. Isaiah 30, verse 19. I'm going to give you a second to get there. Lest you be confused and think I think we're the only church, the most encouraging thing that I have found is everywhere I go, there are nondescript people who are not demagogues, not movie stars. They're not great men of faith on purple-haired TV and strange networks with thrones. They're nameless servants of Jesus who are raising up people everywhere they go. And I find them in every city, in every country, everywhere I've ever been. Some of them are very educated. Some of them are not educated at all. Some of them are amazingly talented. Some are not talented at all. And yet God manages to use them like uncut stones being built into a spiritual house for His glory. Isaiah 30, verse 19. O people of Zion who live in Jerusalem. That sounds a little bit like Morpheus, huh? O people of Zion who live in Jerusalem, you will weep no more. How gracious He will be when you cry for help. As soon as He hears, He will answer you. Although the Lord gives you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, your teachers will be hidden no more. Who gives you adversity and affliction? Mm, Maybe that was just a different dispensation. Something we need to realize is when there are goads in our lives, when there is affliction and adversity, the Lord might be trying to steer you away from your direction and into His prescribed way. Listen to what He says. Whether you turn to the right or to the left, your ears will hear a voice behind you saying, This is the way. Walk in it. Then you will defile your idols overlaid with silver and your images covered with gold. You will throw them away like a menstrual cloth and say to them, Away with you. When you find out how good God's prescribed way is for your life, not by walking in it a day or two days, but for many months and years, you will look back and say, this is better than I could have ever done. You might even have a testimony that says, if I had written down what God could accomplish in me in ten years, I never would have dreamed this high. Look what He has done. That will be your testimony. It will make every idolatrous thought you have seem like something unclean that needs to be thrown away. The problem is most only try this for a day or two and then it becomes difficult. Or they try it in a difficult situation but not the rest of the time. I'm inviting you to accept Him as Lord of every area of your life or go ahead and confess He's not really Lord of any area of your life. I'm inviting you to make a serious choice today. There are at least one person who has demanded to be baptized. She passed what is known the Barbie test. I think there's more than that here and some have indicated a desire and we're going to see what the Lord does. I want you to know what the Barbie test is because we're about to go out and baptize. Darren, you can kill the recording now. Here's the Barbie test.